Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. Every once in a while, we are able to track down a hot, sought-after after author. It's very, very difficult to do when you've got these big-time writers, but I managed to corner the incredibly exclusive Jay Cost, who we never hear from here at the Weekly Standard. Hello, Jay. Uh, hi, Michael. You know, I was waiting my introduction. It should be Peter Gabriel's big time now, you know, I mean, because that's where I am. It absolutely should be. And, I, and I, we appreciate you fitting us in between phone interviews with Ottumwa, Iowa, and the Ladies' Home Journal. But uh, flacking a book is not easy, Jay, as you know. No, it's not. But it's good, rewarding work. You know, you write the book, you put all this effort into it, and you really, you know, you just want it to find its audience, whatever that audience may be. And, you know, if that's what, that's good work. It's a good problem to have. Well, as a fellow author, I hate the fact that you've written a good book. That makes it much more annoying, I'm sorry to say. A Republic No More is a title, and I will tell you, I am here to throw down all day with you, Jay Cost. Alexander Hamilton had it right. Madison had it wrong. Start right there, baby. Well, bring it. I'm ready. What what do you got? (laughs) No, I'm a big uh, Hamiltonian for way back, and it's fascinating to me how you have managed to drag James Madison away from the White House that he lost in the war to the uh, British in 1812 and bring him to today's uh, political moment, which is politics in America in and of itself is corrupt. I think that's a good thesis statement for your book. I think I think that's a that's a good thesis. Um, you know, and look, just to be clear, I am uh, amazed by Hamilton. I, you know, if I had a criticism of Hamilton, it would be this: that you know he skedaddled from the Constitutional Convention too early and did not make the case for building institutions of government that could manage the powers that he had in mind. You know, I mean, because he was the only one in the country. I think. Well, I don't want to exaggerate, but he was one of the few. Uh, who had a, a real understanding of how public finance operated. And that is something for all of James Madison's many, many, many virtues. Uh, he had, he really had a very backward view of, of how credit actually worked. I mean, he thought banking was akin to gambling. So, you well, know, what do you, that's what you get for hanging out with that uh, inbred farmer, John Thomas Jefferson. But we'll get to that another time. <laughs> the, the book is a, uh, a Republic No More. Has corruption, and, and first of all, you have to, to explain to our listeners what you mean by corruption, but has the political corruption truly ended the Republican, Republic in a way that uh, Madison and Hamilton and Jefferson would view it? I think so. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, I don't pull any title, or pull any punches in the title of the book. You know, um, when I was originally sketching this out, I, I pitched it to Roger Kimball at uh, Encounter as a as a study in corruption, a historical study that then, you know, focuses on the present day. And I was thinking of calling it the violence of faction, which is take, which is a phrase that uh, uh, Madison uses in Federalist Number Ten. Uh, but you know, Michael, by the time I got about three quarters of the way through the book and just had seen item after item, and I, I had this running total in my head, okay, how much is political corruption costing us today? How much has it cost us through the years? And I just got to the point, it was like, who am I kidding? This, I don't know, well, what do you want to call this system of government we have? But it is not a republic in the way that the founding fathers envisioned it would be. I end up using the phrase special interest democracy which is uh, 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 not an invention of my own, but it's something that George, George Romney, Mitt's dad, 
uh, in an interview in the 70s labeled it, and I think it's a pretty apt description of what we have now. Well, let's back up because uh, we do need to talk about what you mean by corruption, and you don't mean the good old-fashioned kind of corruption that I saw in Boston with the Big Dig, which was originally supposed to cost $3 billion. It's currently at $23 billion, and it's already failing and has killed somebody. You don't mean that kind right. of corruption. No. I mean, although that certainly is you know, there is certainly corruption when we talk about, you know, bribery and kickbacks and extortion and just stuff that you could go to jail for. That's certainly included in my definition. But I do take a broader view of it. And again, I, you know, and I apologize to your tender sense of Hamiltonian sensibility, Michael, <laughs> but I, I take a Madisonian view of it. Madison understood, um, he called it factionalism. Um, and and to, in Madison's understanding, a faction was a group or interest uh, who had uh, you know preferences that were adverse, as he said, to the rights or interests of the whole community. So interest group politics, but not just that, but interest group politics in a way that works against the public interest. And uh, corruption happens um, when the government. Uh, works on behalf of interest groups at the expense of everybody else. That's why Madison called it the violence of faction. And indeed, when Madison wrote that phrase in the 1780s, things had actually turned violent, for instance, in your former uh, home state of Massachusetts. Yeah, Shades Rebellion, that was a, yeah, a real big right. party. But uh, mm -hmm. almost as big as the uh, party after the uh, New England Patriots yet again won another Super Bowl. But, um, almost. This, I want to give you an example from a local story here in Atlanta where I currently live because I think it, it kind of highlights one of the problems you're talking about. If we were just talking about the fact that big businesses try to spend money and influence government, well, you go, well, there's other big businesses and there are other interests who don't like it. But when you get to the point where you abandon the notion that you know that people using their power to exploit others who don't have the power is just taken for granted. I think that's it. And uh, in uh, Georgia, like many states, are having a debate over how to pay for roads, and they want to spend another billion dollars a year. They're run by Republicans, good small government types, right, Jay? So right, of course. I so think that's what we're told. <laughs> so the the common sense thing would be: you want to pay for roads, you raise gas taxes. Gas taxes pay for roads because people use the roads; they buy the gas. You're done. The proposal that is actually being debated is a half billion dollar tax on smokers, people who use cigarettes and tobacco. And the question is, what does this have to do with roads? You buy a pack of cigarettes. Well, how is that connected to roads? And the answer, no joke, from the lobbyist was, hey. Only 18% of us smoke, 90% of us drive, let's go get them. And, I mean, now, that's not technically corruption, but it is in the broadest sense. The, hey, we've got power. We've got the ability to use the power. You don't have any uh, recourse from our power. Ha, ha, ha. Guess who's going to spend $500 million a year in new taxes? Yeah, that's that's right. And you know what? I mean, Madison himself says that a faction can amount to a majority of the whole uh, uh, of the population. I mean, you can have a faction of one person, you can have a faction of a thousand people, you can have a faction of 150 million people. The real, the real distincting, distinguishing characteristic of a faction is that when its interests sort of operate against the public interest in some way. And the story you've described is sort of like, you know, situations where the majority says, like, let's go screw over this minority because they can't do anything about it in a democracy. That is the violence of faction, you know. And even if the minority is not particularly sympathetic, in this case, you know, 
smokers like in in 2015 it's like why are you still smoking um you know but you know nevertheless that's another aspect of it you know i mean they may be sympathetic they may not be sympathetic but they still you you know in in a republican form of government you should not have the majority using the powers granted to it to just take money from a minority that can't do anything about it. But but there was a time when if an interest wanted to do something, they felt some need to, you know, show how it was, you know, the greater good, you know, here's our, here's the principled decision behind it. And what I loved about this story was listening to the, the, uh, the lobbyists say straight up, here's the math on who to get you look at you look at farm you look at farm spending which you write a lot about in a republic no more the people pushing for the farm subsidies they they have no argument whether it's ethanol which is a terrible deal for the taxpayers or whether it's agro agribusiness terrible deal they simply say there are a lot of farm states out there and they got a lot of votes what about your principal position screw principal position i've got lobbyists i've got states i've got people to pull you're going to keep those subsidies coming yeah, you know, the most extraordinary thing about farm subsidies, too, is that there aren't really that many votes attached to it anymore. I mean, the, the percentage of Americans, I believe, um, that are attached to the farm economy that actually are farmers is like 1% of the country. Um, so it's not even really, it's not even farmers, you know, we're not really talking about like, you know, the family farm exactly. gets these subsidies. I mean, and, and that, I, that is what's so dangerous about corruption and the way it works in the United States, right? Is that in, you know, so often it is a, it is a drain of public resources from the taxpayer to some small interest group that is plugged in on the right subcommittee uh, and and has contributed to the right members of Congress that you've never even heard of, I've never even heard of. You know, I study this stuff for a living. Uh, you know, and it, you know, money carefully targeted, lobbying carefully targeted, promises are made, the bill is produced. It's a it's a terrible piece of garbage that misallocates tens of billions of dollars, uh, but nobody notices. And I mean, that was what I found writing this book again and again and again. And by the way, this is a, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do it from a historical perspective is that a lot of this stuff is very, very old. Um, you know, farm subsidies, that's a relatively new thing, but you know, Congress has been monkeying around with taxes in pretty offensive ways really since like the 1820s. And so here's my question for you. Why is it a republic no more? Was it a republic, say, in 1980 during the Reagan Revolution? Was it a republic uh, FDR? You know, when when did we turn the corner to a special interest democracy? Well, I think we turned the corner a while ago. I think that the Reagan Reagan, um, I think, in my story, is really notable for getting a, a genuinely decent piece of reform legislation passed, which was the Tax Reform Act of 1986. Um, but it's 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 been a long time coming. And you know, look, I don't want to be pie in the sky naive about things. You know, a lot of people when I tell them about the book, they're like, "Oh, well, you know, corruption, it's inevitable." And you know, my response is, "Of course, it's inevitable." I mean, Madison himself says factionalism is sown into the very nature of man. That's what he says. Uh, and the real question is whether or not we're controlling its 
negative effects, you know, because we can't get rid of factionalism. If it's part of human nature, there's no getting rid of it. The question is whether or not we're dealing with its effects to a reasonable extent. And I just think that having looked at, you know, in the second half of the book, I look at five contemporary policies. I look at farm subsidies, which we talked about, the pork barrel. I look at Medicare, taxes, corporate taxes, and and financial regulation. And in all five of them, I see massive corruption, really massive, and I'm very careful in how I document it. I mean, the book's got like 80 pages worth of footnotes. Um, am I on, By the way, that's the best part of the study. book. It's the, the most uh, readable and, and punchy. I like that. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, I, tried, <laughs> I tried to strike a balance with that. I appreciate that. But, um, you know, look, I, and I think, you know, I add it all up, and honestly, you know, the, my back-of-the-envelope calculation by the end of it was over $100 billion every year. Every year! And, uh, you know, I trace it. The subtitle of the book is Big Government and the Rise of American Political Corruption. And my hypothesis is that as the power that, you know, that when the framers handed, created this government and handed it off to us, their idea was, okay, we have these institutions, we've given them certain powers, and they're going to balance and check one another so that even though the country is factional and men are selfish, they will enter this system and uh, they'll knock against one another and the end result will be self-interested it's or public interested it's almost right. as, if, as if the constitution was a finely calibrated swiss watch right and what we have done over generations is we have added power after power after power to this government under the assumption that it could handle the load that checks and balances would work just as well for a government as designed in 1787 as for the government after the New Deal. And my hypothesis is that that's not correct, that Madison had the right view of things, was that you have to calibrate these things very carefully and very precisely. They calibrated it well, but we have been clumsy and we have been ad hoc and we haven't thought things through when we've added power to the government, and that this has eroded the government's capacity to check and balance factions and so what we get is interest, you could call it interest group liberalism, um, which doesn't exclude conservative Republicans in government. It's just sort of, you know, liberalism from a general perspective. Interest group liberalism, you could call it cronyism, you could call it honest graft. There's so many different words for it. But I just see again and again, this government was originally designed to favor the common good over special interests. And now too often it does the opposite. So how do we get our republic back? What can we do, Jay Cost, to, you know, what, what should the platform of the Republicans be, or what should the platform of Americans be to get it back? Well, you know, look, it, that's a tough question. The book doesn't deal with that directly. My piece in the magazine starts to look at that, you know. Um, I think there's a couple different ways to approach this. I think conservatives need to start pushing the Republican Party full bore into an anti-cronyism agenda. And I think that they just have to be stand up against corporate welfare and stand up against the ways that big government favors and patronizes big business. Because honestly, nine times out of 10, when I found corruption, that was the sort of corruption that I found, right? Um, we get ourselves, we get ourselves all tangled up in knots over, over, over all sorts of issues. But I think that's a real winner for conservatives. Beyond that, we got to work 
And we've got to think about fixing Congress and making Congress behave better and thinking about how can we actually get some stuff passed. I think too much of our – on the right – Already, we're starting to spend an enormous amount of energy thinking about the 2016 presidential election and the nominating convention and who's going to be the best candidate. And we spend so much time on personalities. And, and meanwhile, the House is a mess. The, the Senate is a mess. The House is more of a mess than the Senate. Uh, and Republicans have controlled this, the House for 14 of the last 18 years. Uh, so it's the Republicans' fault that the House is a mess. And I think that conservatives need to start spending a little more time and effort and put more thought into thinking about how can we fix the House of Representatives? How can we make Congress responsible for the public interest? How can we end this interest group liberalism? And, you know, by the way, this relates to, you know, I know that there is a broad dissatisfaction with conservatives with the Republican Party these days. God knows I feel it too. And I, and I really think part of the, our problem is that uh, in the last 20 years, the Republican Party has become the party of Congress. But Congress has also got its claws into the Republican Party. Like the Republicans – Congress has been dysfunctional for generations, right? Now that the Republicans are in charge, it's like that dysfunctionality has like seeped into the Republican Party itself. It's a two-way street. And I think conservatives, rather than like thinking about which Republican nominee can fix things and thinking about the personalities, we need to start thinking about, well, how do we deal with this? This mess that is the United States Congress, because it is a mess. Well, it is, but you have the party of, uh, you know, uh, 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 opposition to government trying to run the government. And I think that's an uh, inherent uh, flaw. And then the other part is the way to make uh, the, to, to move towards the Madisonian vision that you talk about in your book, uh, A Republic No More, is to take power away from government. And I've yet to see a serious movement from serious Republicans to actually do that. They just want to change how the power is used. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that's a, that's a real problem, which is why I'm sort of, as a starting point, I think the best place to start is an anti-cronyism agenda. You know, this would be, uh, you know, the agenda would be let's shrink the power of government in ways that, you know, in the ways that it helps big business and and showers, you know, in the tax code. There's like $40 billion in the tax code worth of corporate welfare and the Export-Import Bank and farm subsidies. I mean, there are so many different things. There are so many different ways that governmental activism favors the wealthy and the well-connected. That just seems to me like an obvious political winner for Republicans, especially since big government liberal Democrats always accuse them of being elitist and for the wealthy. I mean, doesn't it make sense to, to like say, like, no, we're for getting rid of corporate welfare. What are you for? You know, I mean, it would be a perfect contrast with Hillary Clinton, who is like the archetype. She's like the platonic ideal at this point of the revolving door. You know, it would be a perfect contrast with her to have a Republican come up there and say, we are going to cut the crap out of the corporate tax code and we're going to reduce taxes for small business. We're going to get rid of all these corporate welfare programs. We're going to get rid of we're going to get rid of farm subsidies. We're going to clean up the graft and the waste in Medicare. Uh, you know, 
know, we're going to stop Congress from wasting all this money in the pork barrel every year. What are you going to do, Hillary? And uh, what's, what's her answer to that? I mean, does she have one? The, the, the Clintons have mastered this sort of phony populism over the years, but it's completely dependent upon Republicans playing along. And I think it's time to stop. Well, you pointed out that the fight is in Congress, that Republicans focus too much on 2016. They need to focus on Congress. So with that in mind, Jay Cost, who should be the nominee in 2016 to help get the message across? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know yet. I'm keeping an open mind. Uh, you know, I like where Scott Walker's searching in the polls. You know, I want to see what he's got. Um, you know, I, I tend to have a very pragmatic view of the presidency. I, I sort of almost have a view like similar to what Henry Clay had, where I, I my preference would be for an active Congress that sort of runs the show and and a president who who doesn't take as strong a lead but just sort of keeps it in line. Um, so I, I sort of think primarily about electability. And from that perspective, I think Marco Rubio's at the top of the list. He's up there. But what I about having Rand? The only guy who's running a full-throated anti-government campaign is Rand Paul. And you, obviously there are problems there for a lot of people, including myself, with foreign policy aspect of it. But when you talk about just making the full-on case for it, no, don't do that government, there's nobody else even inhibiting that, you know, trying to take that ground from him. And I was, I just wish the other, some of the other nominees would try to fight up on that hill too. Yeah, I would, I mean, uh, for me, uh, uh, from a personal preference standpoint, Rand Paul is a non-starter. But I agree with you that I would like to see somebody else in the field who has more mainstream views on foreign policy um, really start occupying a lot of the space he's trying to occupy. I, and I would say especially on issues of criminal justice and race relations as well, I think there's room for Republicans to make a move there in terms of, you know, like let's reform the criminal justice code, particularly as it re relates to drug prosecutions. Let's rationalize it. Let's make sense of it. Um, you know, I, I, in a lot of respects, the criminal justice system, you know, it's the sharp end of the stick in our in our system of government. Right. And if you are on the receiving end of that and you haven't done anything wrong, that's a pretty awful place to be. So, you know, when we're talking about reforming our system, I think that that should be at the top of the list. And yet Rand Paul's the only guy talking about exactly. that. I'd like to see somebody else like Scott Walker or Marco Rubio or Mike Pence or Rick Perry. Uh, those are probably my four top guys. I maybe toss in Bobby Jindo, although he's got such bad reviews in, uh, coming out of Louisiana lately. I'm not sure. But my point is, what what's interesting to me is why why aren't some of the other candidates running straight at that space? And yeah, I think I in part I, it's know, because of the know. way well because of the way you fund your campaign. Yeah, you've got to have interests to throw the money at your campaign. And yeah, so, I mean, look, that's one reason why I'm not hugely I'm not really enjoying this pre pre-primary game of sort of who's where and what and when. You know, in 2013, Jeff Anderson and I wrote a big lengthy piece for National Affairs sort of diagnosing the Republican nominating process and suggesting ways to reform it because we, we don't think it works and it, nobody nobody in power paying any attention to it and so I just have my doubts. That <laughs> I just don't think it's a very good process and I, you know, so I just am trying to, you know, Keep my expectations. We all check. know the answer, which is have each of them guest host Saturday Night Live. Whoever does the best job is a nominee. Let's call it a break there. And we've got to call it into this. this is a ton of fun. I can't rate, I, and I have to confess, I haven't finished your book, A uh, Republic No More, but it's absolutely terrific. Got to get it. Jay Cost, thanks so much for your time. So glad we could pull you away from the Weekly Standard to get you here on the podcast uh, for the uh, Weekly Standard. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, thank you, Michael. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.